Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Legendary Leaders, the podcast. I'm happy to have you here and I am delighted to have uh, my guest for today here as well, Dr. John Finn, who founded the award-winning Tougher Minds Consultancy and he has three psychology-related degrees, including a PhD. He has worked in performance psychology, resilience, and leadership science for over 20 years. So he is smart, he is entertaining, he is humble, and just makes this fantastic, engaging, and so interesting episode here today. So for everybody who wants to understand more about how the brain works and how it influences literally everything, our decisions, our behaviors, our stress response, and in particular, our habits, then this is the episode for you. But let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. John Finn as well as Tougher Minds. So Tougher Minds uses basically cutting edge insights from psychology, behavioral science, neuroscience, and world champions to help organizations develop those habit mechanics, as he calls them, or even the chief habit mechanics mechanics, resilient people, outstanding leaders, and world-class teams. He has trained and coached over 10,000 people, and his colleagues work with global businesses, high-growth startups, individuals, elite athletes, coaches, and teams, leading educational institutes, families, the UK government, and think tanks. So I also want to highlight that you can always pop over to his website, tatherminds.co.uk. But one thing we are going to be talking about, and that's really the core of this episode today, is his book, The Habit Mechanic. And he said to himself, it took him over 20 years, but his life's mission is to help people to be their best in the challenging modern world. And this book is proven to change lives. So people have said it is a manual for life and a toolkit for success. And it contains over 30 self-improvement tools. So if you want to feel and do better, right? But the biggest problem you face is that most self-help training and coaching is outdated or even ineffective in this challenging world. Well, then this book might be for you. If you want to learn a little bit more about it and all of those tools and the tricks that he offers as well and some great explanations why we do the things we do them and, and how we do them, then this episode is for you. So without any further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome, John. So good to see you here. How are you? I'm very well, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. Well, I was very excited to have you here on the show. And I have to admit, when I started getting into your book, I was like a little girl at Christmas, right? Trying to unpack all the presents at once, trying to dive into different chapters, looking online at all the tools you have presented there until I, at some point I had to step back and say, okay, where are we going to start? Let's start at the beginning. So you already triggered a huge amount of curiosity in my mind here, before we have even spoken. So excited to have you here and to talk about your, as you call it, manual, the book, The Habit Mechanic. Congratulations to the book. Thank you very much. It only took me 20 years to write, but yeah, I'm pretty pleased with it. I think it's a, I think it's going to help people for a long time into the future and the feedback we're getting is great. 
it's interesting we can see each other here because we're on the video as well and i've got my coffee here good and um the lady that serves me or one of the ladies that serves coffee in our building when i first got because the book's only about four months it's only been out for about four months now and when i first got the physical copies of the book from the publisher I was kind of in back-to-back meetings. So I had these boxes in my office of the books, the first time I'd seen them. So I ripped open the box, grabbed a book, but I wanted to get a coffee. So I took the book down to the, the cafe with me just to grab a quick coffee. And the lady who serves coffee, she said, oh, that, that looks like a really interesting book. Who wrote the book? I said, oh, I wrote this, <laughs> I wrote this book. She said, oh, what's, what's it about? So I told her, she said, that sounds like exactly what I need. So this is... Um, a lady who's got a young family, you know, work, working hard, all the challenges that most of us are facing. So I gave her the book and then over the last, you know, few months, I periodically say, how's the book going, etc. And I asked her last week, I said, are you a habit mechanic yet? And she said, nearly, but honestly, the book has changed my life. That's what she said. Uh-huh. And She's not, I know she hasn't even finished reading the book yet, but she's just started to use a few of the tools. She's found how it's impacting, you know, everything in her life from work to parenting to the relationships, you know, she has in her social life. So, yeah, it's great to, to have that feedback from people because we know we can deliver that kind of feedback with our training and coaching programs, but it's great now to have it all in the book in a, usable manual that people can work through by themselves it it is such a usable manual and I told you before right when I received it and I saw how thick it was it's a massive book I was slightly overwhelmed I thought oh my goodness that will take me a year but it's not it's um so well written it simplifies actually for me the art of neuroscience and psychology and behavioral science. Um, I'm not a psychologist. So for me to have an opportunity to actually understand it and then to apply it to my life on a day-to-day basis, as well as work, that's something that's just brilliantly done. And and I'm utterly grateful for it. So thank you so much for bringing it out into the world. Well, thank you for your feedback. It's taken a long time to make it so simple and accessible, but yeah, yeah, I'm glad we've got there. And we are going to talk about the habit mechanic in a short moment. But you are obviously an author. However, you are also leading an award-winning consultancy called Tougher Minds. So tell us a little bit more about what Tougher Minds are doing and how you're serving people. Yeah, so we equip ambitious individuals, leaders, organizations with what we see as the new essential skills for success in the post-COVID world. Mm-hmm. We feel Tougher Minds has been in existence for over 10 years, but we feel now, especially after the pandemic, there's a new set of skills that people really need if they want to be at their best from an individual who wants to be happier and healthier and feel like they're at the best more often to leaders who want to be able to really positively influence people in the hybrid workplace which is much more, it's a different challenge to doing it when you saw people every day. Yeah. To organisations that know that in order to grow, the only constant thing they're going to have to manage is change. Mm-hmm. Change is driven by the VUCA world and therefore they need their people not just to be doing busy, 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 habitual work, but actually to periodically be stepping back and to be more strategic. And that's a huge challenge coming out of the pandemic. And we see these habit mechanic skills as the essential new skills for success in the post-COVID world. So that, that's what we do. That's who we serve. We do that from coaching to creating bespoke training programs, you know, webinars. And now we have the book. We have our app, uh, the Habit Mechanic University app coming out shortly as well. So we're trying to activate all that helpful behavioral science by what we call the nine action or the nine success factors yeah. to make it as easy as possible for people to understand their own habits whether they're helpful or unhelpful and also to have the the skills and the tools to build more new helpful habits because that's a surprising truth whether you're an individual a leader organization most of what we're doing most of the time is simply mindless habitual behavior we think about 
98%. Some scientists would say it's higher than that. But we have a tiny bit of consciousness. But we have predictive brains that are just running on autopilot. So we prefer just to do what we already know how to do, even if that's worrying and beating ourselves up. And we don't prefer that on a conscious level. It's what our brain, subconscious brain prefers to do. It just prefers to do what it already knows how to do because that's the most energy efficient thing to do. And yet in your book, you are talking about that we can change that. Um, neuroplasticity is something you are writing about and how we can start to basically change our brains and make sure that uh, we create some new connections. How can we do that? Yeah, well, the first thing is to understand that. And it does make me laugh when I speak to, and I've spoken to several people who've got real high profile, I'd say, leadership development businesses, coaching businesses for, you know, for senior leaders. Mm -hmm. And they will, they've told me verbatim, yeah, but, you know, neuroscience hasn't really told us anything new about helping people do better. We already knew all that stuff before. No, 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 that, no. You might not understand the new stuff, but that's not true at all. And here's, here's just the first basic thing it's shown us. When I was at school, and I think when most people listen to this podcast were at school, even if you spoke to the top neuroscientists in the world, they were very compelled that when you stopped physically growing, your brain stopped changing in any meaningful way. So once you stop physically growing, your neural architecture was pretty fixed. And about 20 years ago, we got this technology called functional MRI scanners. This gave us the ability to look inside humans' brains in real time for the first time ever to actually see what is going on in real time inside human brains. And the number one thing that showed us is that humans' brains are not fixed. They are like plasticine. And that's all the word that neuroplasticity means. It means neurons, of which you've got about 100 billion in your brain, oh. are like plasticine. They're like plastic. And they're remoldable. And they are changing all the time. So we are designed, human beings are designed to learn. Well, even before we're, we're born, we're learning. Babies learn to smile. They can't do it when they're first born. They learn to do it via mirror neurons. So we are learning and changing all the time. You may see elderly relatives or older relatives that have really savvy now on their iPads and their smartphones. Yeah, they've learned to do that. They've built new neurons in their brains to do yeah. that. So we can learn and change all the time by this fantastic process called neuroplasticity. The challenge we face in the world that we live in is that our survival instincts make it easy for us to change our brain in a really unhelpful way. By that, I mean, it makes it really helpful easy for us to get really good at things like beating ourselves up and worrying too much and just giving in to short-term gratification, which stops us making progress on big, meaningful goals. So unfortunately, a lot of the, our brains are changing all the time. You know, the thing that you know today, right now, right this minute, that you didn't know this morning is represented by some neurons in your brain. They might not stay around for long if you don't use them, but... Mm -hmm. They are there in your brain as a physical structure. Yeah. Unfortunately, lots of the wires that we're building in the post-COVID worlds and that we built in the pandemic periods are making it more difficult for us to be individually healthy, happy, and able to perform to our potential. So I think one of the things we're seeing from the pandemic is it's been really disruptive for habits and for the neurons we have in our brain. So yeah, changes are two, we can all change, but and we're changing all the time in tiny, tiny ways. But unfortunately, it's much easier in the world we live in to make really unhelpful changes and to get better at the unhelpful stuff. I need to ask you the, for me, obvious question. Not sure if it's that obvious for you. And that's why you said it's strongly connected to the survival instinct. Knowing now, conceptually, that there is a huge chance that if we change and we deliberately embrace change or even create change, we could live healthier, happier, more fulfilled lives instead of sticking with the perhaps unhelpful habits and behaviors. How, how is the survival instinct connected? Yeah, so in the book, we have three models that we use to, sh to show this, which 
range in simplicity to complexity. So we have our most simple model, which is the lighthouse brain model, mm-hmm. which I'll explain. Then we have the ape brain model, which is the alive perceived energy brain. And then we have the emotional regulation model. So let, let's use the simplest one to start with. So the light, imagine you have a lighthouse in your brain and two characters live there. One is called Hugh, H-U-E. That stands for horribly unhelpful emotions. So you've got Hugh that lives in the lighthouse and you've also got Wilhelmina power or mm. willpower that lives in the lighthouse. You can decide which yours is called. And Hugh's job is to operate the light beam of the lighthouse. So that's its job. It lives in the lighthouse control centre and it uses that beam of light to scan. It scans the present, it scans the past and it scans the future. And its first instinct is to look for threats and problems because our brain is designed for survival. And it's not just looking for lions, tigers and bears. It's also looking for what we call social status threats. So things that I may have done in the past that might be happening to me in the future, uh, right? sorry, right now, in the present, or that might happen in the future, that make people think of me in a bad way. Because human beings, their unique survival advantage, we're not the biggest, fastest, strongest animal on the planet, but we are the best at working intelligently in teams. If you want to survive, you've got a better chance of doing that if people around you like you. And also, if you want to pass your genes on, you need to be with other people as well. So we are hardwired to be concerned about what are the other important people in our networks think about us. So your brain is scanning your attention and what's going on for these threats and these problems. If there are no obvious threats and problems, the next instinct you has is looking for things that are really easy to do that make you feel good straight away like eating donuts, watching more Netflix, breaking off the mentally complex, challenging tasks that you're doing, doing something that's easier to do. And essentially in that model, when um, there's a problem, Hugh calls up to willpower that we imagine lives in the lighthouse's library. And if your brain's working well and you're a habit mechanic, willpower can come down and help Hugh to sort of solve the problem and it automates some of that behavior. So that's the most simplest way of thinking about it. If we then take a step to the ape brain model, so so we think about the limbic regions of the brain, the big dominant regions of the brain, as the ape brain, which stands for the alive perceived energy brain. Because when you filter it all down, I think you can break down what your survival brain is interested in into three core areas. One is interested in helping you to stay alive. So a lot of the architecture in the brain is in, in that part of the brain is just helping you to breathe and your heart to beat, et cetera. But also when you hear a loud bang, uh, when you see someone walking towards you, it looks a bit threatening, you know, that part of the brain takes over very quickly. The second thing it's interested in is perceived, how you're perceived by important people in your network. Mm-hmm. You know, the parts of our brain that make us aware of, of this social status of our social status are hardwired into the parts of our brain that tell us we are thirsty and we are hungry. That is how fundamental that is to to human uh, behavior and what we've evolved to be good at. Also, we're not very good at distinguishing physical pain and psychological social pain because paracetamols are very good and ibuprofen is very good at dealing with both. So it's, you know, an emotional pain in your brain is almost like a physical pain. It's telling you there's a problem here. And then once everything is going well, so we've got the alive, the perceived, once everything is going well, our brain just wants to save energy. It just wants to do everything as cheaply as possible. Because for most of our existence, energy has been a scarce resource. And, you know, there wasn't always a Pret or a Tesco's or whatever your country living dominant supermarket is. We're we're hunter-gatherers, so we've, for most of our existence, energy has been a scarce resource. We saw that in the pandemic where the, the supermarket shelves emptied really quickly, unnecessarily, because pe- people are trying to get as much of that's what they perceive to be a scarce resource as possible and store up a default back to their instinctive survival brains. 
So we have the alive perceived energy brain. We, so we are great apes. That is our lineage in evolutionary terms. And we can kind of break down the core things that our survival brain, our dominant limbic regions are interested in, into those three core areas, alive perceived energy. Do you think that's enough insight, Kathleen, about the... For, for now, um, there will be more insights to be shared, but I'll let you get a sip of your coffee first. You mentioned the, the pain that we may be experiencing, and I, um, I find it really interesting to hear from people I'm working with who experience mental pain. Let it be, we are talking a lot about exclusion. When you're not a part of a team, you don't have the sense of belonging, how it literally hurts right? Or I talk to leaders who say, I have this constant mental pain that I feel so exhausted. And particularly, you have been referring to the post-COVID world quite frequently today, in particular in this world where it feels so ambiguous, so complex, so pressuresome that people experience this, this pain. And the results they experience from it is they sleep badly, they eat more of the donuts perhaps than really paying attention to the healthier habits and eating more vegetables, um, regular meals, all of that. And I find it really interesting. I know it's a chapter in your book as well, how people operate when they feel significant stress. So it would be interesting to dive a little bit deeper into that topic. A, where is that mental pain really being triggered in our brains? And B, What's got stress to do with becoming a habit mechanic? Yeah, so if, if we think of what is a stress, let's break that down first of all. I held the door open for someone in the office today. I expected them to say, thank you, that's very kind of you. You're a gentleman. Maybe not a last bit. But, um, <laughs> just to say thank you and acknowledge that I held the door open for them, right? That's my expectation. But they just ignored me. And I got a little stress response from that. Mm -hmm. So why did that happen? So stress occurs when what you expect to happen doesn't happen. So we all have this sense of what we're expecting to happen with the relationships in our life, with, with everything that's going on for us. That's called our global meaning system. But then we also have what actually happens, which is called the situational meaning system. And the reason you get a stress is you get a little disconnection between what you expected to happen versus what happens. This has two core consequences one is it triggers a little fight or flight response which is a natural reaction in your body but it's only designed to last about 30 seconds a minute when it goes on for longer than that it starts to cause problems for, for brain function yeah and then the second thing that happens is that broadly you get your attention onto something that's unhelpful for you so well that person's rude they're ignorant and all of a sudden for the next five ten minutes i'm worrying about that instead of paying attention to what i need to pay attention to to help me to be at my best so stress, stress is a natural response, but if we understand why it happens and the actual tangible neurobiological processes that unfold from it, we can start to manage it and build better stress management habits. So instead of any, anyone's stress essentially disrupting our day-to-day -day lives for 15 minutes, can we deal with it in 10 minutes? Or instead of it being disruptive for an hour, can we make it only disruptive for 50 minutes? And every time we do that, we're saving time. We're getting time back. And, and what I see, not, not to get off topic, but if you really apply all the, all the ideas in the book, which you know I've been working these ideas for a long time now, and you build up all these tiny little habits and you activate your super habits and you get rid of your destructive habits. I see, for me personally, and I see other people report this as well, do our in-depth coaching and training programs, you save about 40 hours a month. 40? 40 hours, uh, four zero, mm -hmm. which is about, it's just, over, it's just over an hour a day because you're going to spend less time every day worrying, beating yourself up, dwelling, doing things that are not helpful for you being at your best. You get rid of that stuff. Yeah. So we think of it, it's like a barcode, there's only 24 hours in a day. Think of it like a barcode. The black lines in the barcode are times in the day when you're doing things that are not helpful for you being at your best, thinking things, doing things that are not helpful. The white lines are when you're thinking and doing things that are helpful. When you start to recognize what those black lines are and you get the tools to squeeze them out, 
you just save time and it's, it's easy to save over an hour a day when you're applying these ideas. So seismic changes, but if we understand how, how stress happens, then we can start to deal with it. And, and I think the hidden factor here is that for all of us, there are nine invisible factors that are driving everything that we do. We call them the nine action factors in the book. We sometimes refer to them as the nine success factors. And if you think of your life on a continuum, if one end of the continuum is everything is going as well as it can be, it's absolutely perfect. The other end of the continuum is I'm absolutely failing on, on, on any way I can measure myself. If you're at the successful end of the continuum, and I doubt anyone's life is perfect, but if you're towards that end of the continuum, it means that these nine factors are all working for you. If you're at the other end of the continuum, it means none of the factors are working for you. They're all working against you. And if we can understand what those factors are and get more of them working for us, then life gets easier. But most people don't have a clue what they are. Unfortunately, the big conglomerates, tech companies, supermarkets, whoever they are, they are working out what these factors are and they are making them work against you. They are making you do the things that those businesses want you to do, not the things that actually help you to be healthy, happy, and at your best. So that's the whole idea of becoming a habit mechanic and empowering your people to become habit mechanics is that we empower them to take control of the nine action factors and stop the people that want to control our behavior for their own financial gains controlling our behavior. So I don't know if I've answered your question there, Kathleen, but if we can understand how stress happens, that's a starting point. And then we can start to use the nine action factors that help us to build better stress management habits. Because if we're not very good at dealing with stress right now, it means that the, the nine action factors are not working for us. The other part of the question was the topic around pain, emotional pain, because there is, a, and you are the expert, I'm not, there is a similarity in our brain to the area where physical pain is being triggered that may trigger emotional pain. And that's far too simplistic how I have just described it. But you, as I said, are the expert. Can you share a little bit more with us in terms of emotional pain, where it is triggered, how it is triggered, and what role it plays in leadership in particular to make sure we help other people overcome that kind of pain? So I don't think there are or there is a site in the brain that's responsible for this per se. Mm -hmm. I think pain is a very subjective idea. What's painful for me might not be painful for you at mm -hmm. all. Yeah. And yet the same parts of our brain are activated or similar parts of our neurobiological structures are activated when you're feeling this is exactly what I need. And I'm thinking this is going to lead to a breakdown for me. So emotions are just chemical responses in the brain and Some of the emotions I experience, and this is why we talk about things are either helpful or they're unhelpful, because something that's really positive might be really unhelpful for you. For example, I really like donuts, and if I had a donut for breakfast this morning, that would have been really positive, but actually it's really unhelpful for my health, happiness, and performance goals. Equally, if my boss gave me some negative feedback this morning about a piece of work that I'd submitted to her that may have felt really negative but actually it's exactly what I need it's really mm -hmm. helpful to mm -hmm. take me my work to the next level yeah. so I think it's very hard to get into the specifics of where these things sit in the brain it's just to understand that we get emotional responses when we get these disconnections of meaning systems and we can assign Uh, neurotransmitters to those things like cortisol, for example. And, you know, too much of that in our brain is not helpful, but it's hard to assign specific regions, etc. I think you mentioned a really great example there, the feedback you may have received from a boss, right? How often, and that's just a message I want to share with the listeners, do we shy away from having challenging conversations? You know, tough feedback perhaps or just sharing where things need to change however if we can 
communicate the why behind it very clearly, the why of you are accepted the way you are. And I want you to help being successful. I want to help you being successful. And also to show that there will be a positive outcome out of it if, you know, everything I've just shared will be put into practice. Then this whole situation shifts and there may be some huge benefits in there for the individual. And coming back to the changing world and the constant change we are experiencing, I think sharing this, the why, and making sure you do that in the most human and open way uh, can be so hugely helpful. Yeah, so explaining the because this is the reason why behind it is more influential for sure. So we can see just very simple influence research, for example, people queuing up for a photocopier and then seeing what does it take to get ahead in the queue. So which explanations as to why I need to get ahead of you are most influential. And it turns out, as long as you put a because in there, because I need to get to the doctors, but you could easily say because my work's more important than yours right now. It's got You've got more of a chance. But if we go back to the basics, so one of the things that neuroscience has shown is just how powerful negative emotions are in our brain. And we've, so we've, from a leadership management perspective, we've hugely underestimated this in the past. So science would tell us, if, if we look at someone like Barbara Fredrickson's work, she understands that people that are doing very well, what she'd call flourishing, for every one negative they're experiencing, they've got at least three positives. And this is called the grounded theory of positivity. Mm. But that's a minimal ratio. So three to one is a, is a minimal ratio. Sometimes you're going to need up to 11 to one to balance out the negative because our yeah. brain gets magnetized to the negative. Yeah. So as a simple rule, what leaders have typically been taught is that the sandwich technique of feedback, give them a mm-hmm. positive, give them a negative, give them a positive. But neuroscience shows that isn't enough. It's got to be at least three to one. So you could think about giving your feedback as three to one. So whatever the negative is, you've got to balance that with some of the helpful things as well, things they're doing well. And we can scale up those ideas. So we know that if you want your business to be really successful into the future, it isn't necessarily going to be the businesses that are best funded, the businesses with the most intelligent people that are going to do the best. What is going to be essential is that you've got the best teams. And the the heartbeat of a powerful team is communication and collaboration. And communication and collaboration is not going to be good if people's brains are not working properly. And a big factor that's going to stop people's brains working properly is negativity, threats, worries, feeling like I'm being judged. It shuts down the prefrontal cortex and it gets people's brains on in sort of survival threat alert mode. So you can't communicate and collaborate to be really good at solving problems for your clients, for for the business. So we've got to think about that from a cultural perspective, you know, and the word culture comes from, comes from Latin. It means to cultivate traditionally in an agricultural sense. And the first thing I'm going to have to get right, if I want to cultivate my crops is to get the soil right, is to pick the right, place where they've got the right weather to grow the crops that I want to grow. You can use exactly the same understanding for cultivating your people. So think about you're growing your people out of the soil in your business. And if that soil's too acidic, they're not going to grow properly. So you, the foundation of, of, of the culture has to be safety, has to be, it's okay to make mistakes here. We want you to make mistakes I'm the senior leader. I'm not perfect. I'm learning and I'm making mistakes all the time, but I'm learning from those and it's making me better. Yeah. So it's going to be much easier to get back to the question for the boss to, to give the negative feedback to the direct report if they understand how the direct report's brain is working at a gist sense. So don't overload the negatives, but also I've got to be modeling the behavior that I'm learning, I'm making mistakes, I'm not perfect, I'm still working on myself. And that's the sort of ground zero here is that we're all working on ourselves to get better. And that means that not being perfect and making mistakes is essential. Yeah. 
for what we do in this business. So yeah, I think that's really important to understand. And a part of our leadership model is called the action communicator, which is all about communicating in a way that really gives you a better chance of getting people to do the things that are going to be most helpful for the, for the team and the organization. Yeah. And you know what, coming back to the COVID, not question, but to the COVID post COVID situation, right? We imply it quite often, a lot of change, the VUCA world, we have been living in high pressure um, environments for a lot of leaders, at least the leaders I'm working with, but I could also hear that you are making some similar experiences with people you are supporting. And I often hear from leaders individually, I don't know how to manage to get the best out of my team because I struggle to lift myself up. I struggle to find purpose myself. I struggle to feel myself. And you said before, and you know, if we can be on our best uh, on a more regular basis, so, so how can leaders do that? How can they feel more at their best and therefore get the best out of their people? What are some simple steps we could perhaps recommend? Yeah, so and this is, this is why the way our model structured is you become a habit mechanic first and then you become a chief habit mechanic. So mm -hmm. habit mechanic is understanding how to get the best out of myself. Chief habit mechanic is understanding how to create a culture that helps everyone else to get the best out of themselves. Mm -hmm. The first thing we're going to have to do if we want to be at our best more often is do more what we call intelligent self-watching. So we've got to get better at understanding ourselves. Our brains are not wired to be very good at thinking about ourselves and what we do and think, our behavior, because we've got brains that are running on autopilot. We have predictive brains. So that's why we have the self-assessments in the book that actually help you to do more intelligent self-watching. And you know, a, real, a really simple intelligent self-watching exercise would be, how well did you do your best to be your best and achieve your goals yesterday? 10 would mean you were perfect. One would mean you failed. You can give yourself a score somewhere on that continuum. So we need to make it easier for people to do intelligent self-watching. And again, all the, what we call our habit analysis tools are in the book. Then we need to pick the area that we think is going to be most helpful for us to improve in the short term could be a better stress management, could be a better stress management habit, it could be a better sleep habit, it could be a better productivity habit, it could be better confidence habit. So you just pick that one thing that we're going to work on, but then we need to create a plan. We need to create an intelligent plan using the nine factors that are going to give us a really good chance of actually implementing what we understand we need to implement. And we call that the swap. So we self-watch, we make a name, we make a plan, a swap cycle. And that's our most basic sort of change process. And the beauty of that is that you can then also start to use that same understanding with your direct reports. So we call that becoming a swap coach. So once you understand how to start making some small swaps to your own behavior, you can use the same understanding to help your direct reports. You can use a similar self-watching approach for your team. So in the book, in the step four, in the, in the Chief Habit Mechanic Leadership section, we have a tool called the Team Power Self-Assessment Tool, where it breaks down team performance into five core areas. So the metaphor is that you're all climbing up a mountain together, and there are five core factors that you need to get right to be really efficient and effective in climbing up the mountain. And you can get the team to rate where they think uh, they are in each of the steps. It's not about being perfect. It's just about having mm -hmm. a place to start and do more intelligent self-watching. Yeah. And again, you can pick the, the priority area, make a plan together, and then review it again in a month's time or, or whatever it is. So it's always about more intelligent self-watching, more intelligent planning. And that's essential. You know, there are over 30 habit mechanic and chief habit mechanic tools in the habit mechanic book. And at the heart of them, they're all really helping you to do more intelligent self-watching and more intelligent planning using the science of how your brain works in neuroscience, using the science of why we do what we do, the behavioral science, which 
in our model is the nine action factors. And then showing you the simple and practical tools that you can use to actually put that into practice in your day-to-day -day life and start one tiny step at a time building new helpful habits. And I think when I speak to senior leaders, the traditional approaches that we've been using to help our teams and our organizations do better, our measurements around headcount. Do we have enough people in the team and the business to do the work that we need to do? So that's one thing they're, they're focused on. Number two is, do we have the right procedures and processes in place that are going to be as efficient and effective? Do we have the right technologies that are going to help us to be more efficient and effective than our competitors? And number three may, may have been, some people have three as well, which is about getting the right people into the business. But now I think there's a hidden factor, or there's always been a hidden factor that's just become much more salient than ever before, is that do the people in the business have the right habits? And I think that for everyone, or for the vast, the significant majority of people have developed worse habits in the, in the pandemic. And they are negatively impacting everything that we do every day. And they are actually the major cause for all the problems we're seeing in our businesses is that people's habits are just not where they need to be. And that we can keep bringing more people into the business. We can refine our processes and procedures again. But if our people's habits are not where they need to be, that stuff's just a waste of time. Because more than ever before, it's people's habits that are running the business. Because the only constant is change. You know, we're not in the factory model anymore where you've got the right technology and it would see you through for the next 50 years until you retired as a leader. Things are changing too quickly now. So the absolute foundation of a successful uh, team or organization is going to be people's habits. Yeah. So many questions you trigger in my brain here. And let's start with success. So one thing I want to highlight, and I think you've highlighted that in the book as well, is that success looks different to different people. So if you want to become more successful in a certain field and change the habits in that field, you obviously need to define first what does success mean to you, right? And what would it look like? How would it feel like if you put it in place? And really, really live into that and feel into that. So it's it's hard to say at this point, this is success for you, because each and every listener needs to think about that themselves and defines it from the start. And I would imagine my experience with habit formation, at least, is then let's give it a go. And you described it very nicely in the book as well, with those teeny tiny habits that you implement, first of all right? Step by step. And then you might need to go back and see as to whether that has worked and as to whether that's the habit, uh, the new healthy habit that you want to introduce. And you mentioned it's a manual. So it's not a book you read and you put back into the shelf. It's something you go back to on a regular basis. And it's exactly the same with change to see what has worked for you to create the success for you. So I just wanted to highlight that as well. Makes sense, yeah. So the, the way that we think about what does success mean for you, I'm not. you might actually be on the motivation chapter now, or you may have read that, I think up to chapter 18. But anyway, we've got an individual level. We have a tool called the FAM form, which is a future ambitious, meaningful story. Where in very simple terms, you say it's like an iceberg. The top of the iceberg is a distant future. You know, what do you want to have and, and have achieved in 10 years' time? And if people don't have any other answers there, they, they typically have at the apex of, of the iceberg, I want to be healthy and happy in the distant future. Right, so in the next one to four years, what do you need to do to give yourself a better chance of being healthy and happy in the distant future? And then in the next 12 months, what do you need to do to achieve the goals in the next one to four years? And then this month, what do you need to achieve your goals in the next 12 months? And then this week, what do you need to achieve to achieve your goals this month and then today what do you need to achieve and ultimately all those things are driven by your habits by your automated behavior because most of what you're going to do to achieve whether it's the weekly monthly yearly long-term future goal will be driven by mindless habitual behavior so that brings you down to the habits and an organizational level in the cultural architecture section of the book we have a strategy tool which has five core questions that kind of lead you down the same path. So at the top is what's winning for the organization or for the team. And the bottom is what are your management systems that actually give people the best chance of 
developing and securing the habits that are going to allow the team and the business to get those outcomes. So yeah, there's nothing prescriptive in our approach. It's always about, here's the information, you try and you test things in your life. Yeah. But I do believe that you've got to ad- adopt that habit mechanic mindset now if you want to be at your best in the world that we live in. It can't just be something that I do. It's got to be part of my identity that I'm regularly stepping back and reflecting and working on new habits because it's easier than ever to slip back into the old and helpful behaviors because you are being triggered and activated to do that almost constantly now. You mentioned those habits, right? People bring to work and that might have the biggest influence on the success or failure of an organization, of a team, whatever it is. So how can I be or how can I become this successful chief habit mechanic, which entails to build awareness around those habits in others, not just in myself, which I find challenging enough, to be quite honest, right, to build that self-awareness and then to make the changes as well and stick to them. But also where you help them and coach them along the way while having everything else going on. And you are a leader yourself. So how do you do it, perhaps? Yeah, The reality is that every leader is already a chief habit mechanic because they are everything they do and everything they've set up in the team and the organization is influencing people's behavior. It's just that you've probably done it blindly without really understanding how to deliberately activate people's behavior. People try to do this. They talk about, you know, the burning platform, tell them about the burning platform, communicate the message, communicate the message, tell them about the values. So we're trying to do this all the time. It's just that we haven't understood the factors that are actually driving people's behavior before now. And, and I don't know of any other program or, or book that describes the behavioral science in such a practical, encompassing way like the habit mechanic approach does. You know, we've worked really hard to, to get that model so concise and, and practical. The first thing to always remember is you're already this you're not starting from a blank piece of paper here in the sense of your own behaviors. You've already got some really good stuff that are going on for you. So part of your journey as a as a habit mechanic is to uncover what what is that and how do I do more of that stuff? Equally, as a as a chief habit mechanic, you're already doing some good stuff. It's just about how do I scale that up and do it even better. So The way that we break down being a chief habit mechanic is into four simple areas. One is the role model, which is really becoming a habit mechanic. One is the action communicator, which is about how you communicate with people, both verbally and you know physically and, and everything that you do over email, etc. One is the cultural architect, which is about how do you create the vision and the culture of the organization and drive that forwards. And then the final bit is the swap coach. How do you work one-to-one or manage teams in a, in a way that actually changes their behavior in a positive way? So you're going to see some good stuff across those four areas. You're going to see some stuff that you want to improve, but you just start on one at a time. And every month, every other month, you go back to the self-assessments and you score yourself again and rate yourself again and see where you're at. Yeah. see what improvements you're making, see which areas are going to be most helpful for you to work on. And when I, when I work one-to-one with senior leaders, what I'm doing is I'm helping them to think about the habits across the organization and where they think the biggest room for improvement is. And we create a habit-building process plan across the organization so that we can activate those nine factors as best as we can to make it as easy as possible for people to be more strategic or to create better work-life balance or to do all the things that businesses want them to do. But I actually think they're probably two of the most salient things I'm hearing at the moment. I have to admit, when I think about all the habits that I've experienced in my leadership roles and what I worked with my team on, it was negative self-talk and thinking more positively about oneself, which was a journey. It took quite a bit of time, but there are some useful tools to use as well. Reacting instead of responding, those quick reactions when notifications come in, uh, and let's quickly do something. 
getting distracted by the mindless scrolling through whatnot, new social media, and so on and so forth, which distracts our brain as well. And it, it wasn't useful in terms of productivity. And there's so much if you just, if you are observant, if you have those open conversations, and if you use the tools that you are suggesting here together with the team and create more openness around it, that you can find out right away, right? And, and then you can choose just a few of them to make the first changes, and to work together on it. And then by disclosing what your own uh, triggers or habits in this case might be, you make it even more powerful and you become this role model you were referring to, John, as well. Yeah. So we have a program called the Team Power Program Mm -hmm. where we work with up to about 15 people. They could be in the same team or in the same organization. Yeah. And it's taking them. We typically do that over about three to four months. And we go on this journey together. We start by helping people to analyze their habits. We do it over video, you know, conferencing technologies. Oh, we have, we have been in the pandemic, which seems to work really well. And people are reflecting and they're working on their habits and, but they're doing it in a really open and honest way. And they're modeling, sharing vulnerability, modeling the successes that they're having, you know, getting, building deeper relationships because of that. But what, what we see on those journeys is that right at the start of the journey, everyone's in a different place. You know, just with the most recent um, programs we've been doing as we've kind of come out of, of, of lockdown, people really are on a continuum. Some are at the worst end of the continuum and they say, you know, literally I'm on the verge of divorce. We've had a new baby. You know, I'm not getting out of the house. It's terrible. The other end is life's great. I feel like I'm more present for my kids, you know, not traveling every day has been really helpful, et cetera. But when you get to the other, the other side of the program, so, you know, you're three, four months in, what, what fascinates me is the people who said they were doing the best here, actually the ones who are telling you how much they're improving and how much better they feel. And it just shines that torch on how unself-aware we are we're not designed to really understand ourselves unless we're deliberately taken on a journey to think about that in a structured way. You know, you talked about negative self-talk. People don't really think about talking to themselves because that's always been there and can find it really hard to connect with the idea that you are talking to yourself all the time. Yeah. You know, and you might be now thinking, if you're listening, well, I'm not talking to myself. <laughs> yeah, that's self-talk. You're talking to yourself all the time, right? <laughs> And it's really easy to say unhelpful things and getting that habit of saying unhelpful things without even recognizing it. So our thoughts drive our behavior. And if we're more aware of them and we recognize that we can start to manage them, it's going to be easier to, to build better habits. But if we can make this the this, this centerpiece of our organization, that everybody is turning up for work every day, working on themselves to get a little bit better, that is going to be the heart of, of a healthier, happier, more empowered, higher performing workforce. And and I think it's really exciting because this is relatively untapped. And I think we've got a great opportunity now to actually help our people to understand this and really accelerate their lives, not just at work, but at home as well. And I think the businesses that embrace this approach, this habit mechanic approach, are going to beat the competition every single time in the world that we live in. Yeah. So I think it's really exciting. You know, that's the topic that gets me goosebumps. And you've achieved that with the book as well, as well as with the habit topic you started a few minutes ago when you talked about people bringing the habits to work as well. And that's what we've got to be aware of and work with. Because what you are highlighting there is that our different areas in life impact different areas in life you and i said that in plenty of podcast episodes before but i can't say it enough you're not going to work show up as a different person building different habits you are one person and the way you deal with yourself and your environment at home will have an impact on how you show up at work vice versa and and living a healthier and a happier life is connected to all the different areas that you experience in life not just the one or the other. So it's important that we work on ourselves step-by-step step as human beings and embrace all the good stuff about us and improve, as I said, step-by-step step, the areas we want to improve. 
and become better. And as you say, really explore and um, yeah, uh, explore our potential and live to our best. Yeah, and I think the hybrid workplace has now given employees the permission to speak about these very fundamental things like yeah. sleep, diet, and exercise. We're asking people to work from home or they're choosing to do that. Just those three things alone, I think, again, for most people, they've really been negatively impacted by the pandemic. Those three things are absolutely central for good brain function and for your people being able to turn up with a brain that actually allows them to do a great job for the business and for your clients. If their brain's not working well, they're not going to do anything clever. Yeah. And that can't happen unless they've got good sleep, good diet, good exercise habits. So these are might sound simple but they're very complex things to get right and yeah for me this is just given organizations the opportunity and to speak about those things in a really genuine caring way because as you say Kathleen we get good at what we practice ultimately so if we're practicing unhelpful behaviors in our private life they will spill over into our work life and now the line between work and home life has never been more blurred. These two things are absolutely interconnected. Mm -hmm. And I said right at the start, I do believe there are a new essential set of skills that people need uh, to be at their best, which are these habit mechanic building skills we're talking about. Before we come to the end of this, what I think, very intriguing conversation, and my mind is already going in the direction of when can I talk again to John? I want to talk a little bit about you. Because obviously you have had a journey up to the point where you said, you know what, I'm going to write this manual for others to help them be at their best. And I want to touch up on one story in particular that connects us really nicely to you being a role model, to you building safety here with the listeners, because you've experienced failure as well in the past, right? And Every, every day I experience <laughs> failure not just in the past. I want to say I hope so, because, yeah, it, we can learn from it and take some good lessons away from it, despite the fact that it can feel really tough sometimes. But one of them is related to rugby. And now I told you I love rugby. And you played rugby in university. And in the book you're writing about having this really important game set up against Australia, the university team of Australia, which was at this point of time the, the best in the world. Amongst yeah, the universities. They're, they're always up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good, yeah. Yeah. Not quite the all blacks, but well, here we go. And your mind played tricks on you. And that's something I always wonder when I watch rugby, right? Um, my, my other half is Irish, so we are supporting the Irish team. And what strikes me with them is they drive me absolutely crazy when I watch rugby. Because you expect them to be great because they beat the all blacks, some of the greatest teams in the world. And the next week. Something is going on in their brains that they lose. And they literally make such very basic mistakes. And I keep saying, you never know what's going to happen with the Irish because I don't know what's going on in their minds ahead of a game. So what has been your experience ahead of that and during that game against Australia? Well, it wasn't against Australia. It was the warm-up game to play Australia. Ah, um, the warm-up. I didn't Sorry. get selected for the, for the Australia game. But... Um, well, what was going on in my head was I was just telling myself, don't drop the ball, don't drop the ball. And I dropped the ball, of course. Yeah. But I think, yeah, again, it's so, so, so basic, but I've innovated this idea called activation, activation levels, which is a chapter you haven't read in the book yet, which is, which is foundational for everything that we're doing. And activation is just a concept that mirrors how mentally and physically alert we are. So if you think of it on a, on, a, on a dial, you've got zero, zero, all the way up to 100. If you're at zero, zero on the dial, it means you're dead. Okay, that's the starting point. If, you come, if you're sort of not dead, you're probably in a deep sleep. So that, that'll be one and two and three, et cetera. And as you start to get higher on the activation dial, you're more alert, mm -hmm. more awake. And when you get up to 100, you know, you're breathing as fast as you can, you're fight or flight systems are really kicking in. Everything you do every day has an optimal activation level. You know, if you want to do some really clever focus work for me, I need to be about 55, for example. If 
when I give a great presentation, I need, I need to maybe be about 65. If I want to switch off and do what I call some non-sleep recharge, I want to get down to, you know, maybe about 20. What was happening for me on the rugby field was I was overactivated and therefore I lost control of my thoughts. And just, just understanding activation levels for anything we do in our life is super powerful. And, and I would argue that, and, and this is some of the, the All Blacks have probably got or had a better insight into most with their redhead, bluehead type thinking, not quite as articulate as the activation uh, dial. Yeah. But if we can just understand activation, that's going to go a long way to helping us to be at our be at our best, and that's a you know it's, that's connected to every, everything we talk about in the book. But I think it's about chapter twenty one, so you, you can look forward to reading that chapter. I, I am absolutely. But what were other experiences that you have that you have had in your life that triggered your interest in neuroscience and understanding the brain better? Yeah, I just. You know, in my undergraduate degree, I studied essentially sports science, which was physiology, nutrition, psychology, motor control. And you have this situation with the physiology where you're going deep into the muscle structure and function and, you know, blood chemistry, et cetera, where you look at this real scientific detail of actually what is going on inside your body. Yeah, when it came to the psych stuff, it was all these black box models, conceptual theories of what was going on. And then when I got to my master's, the scientists that I studied with were really interested in actually what was happening inside the brain. And a big chunk of what we were learning was about that. And it's like, wow, this is so exciting and amazing. We can actually see what's going on inside our brain now and be far more that science is far more instructive or it gives us a new way of looking at things that we hadn't previously been able to think about before you know and if we actually want to think more effectively we need to take insights about from neuroscience and from from you know all these you know modern ways of thinking about things most psychology approaches that you'll read and, and learn about are based on theories, you know, from up to a hundred years old. So like yeah. the Myers-Briggs, for example, is about a hundred years old. Yeah. And a lot of the dominant theories are from the sixties and seventies. We've had such accelerations in what we understand about human behavior since then. And we've got to use that science to give us the best chance of actually doing well. So I just got fascinated by that but then actually how do you take that quite complex science and make it accessible to people and i know we've got an audience of, of leaders listening to the podcast today kathleen but we teach the same insights to primary school children <laughs> and they can take it and, and use it in their life to help them to do better so that was my passion is how do you make this accessible to as many people as possible so that it just helps people to do better because yeah. It's fairly logical that if you learn about how your brain works and how to manage it better, life's going to get easier. Yet no one ever teaches us about that. People have maybe tried, but the programs they've used haven't been, I don't think, sophisticated enough to be real, have a really meaningful impact. You know, and you see now, mindfulness is starting to get a lot of criticism, for example, as is yoga starting to get a lot of criticism as well, because everything goes in trends. And because the science these things are based and not always that robust, it's easier to throw stones at them. So if we can start with a really strong scientific basis, we've got a better chance of helping people, not just today, but in a sustainable way into the future. It always makes me curious uh, when you talk about the example of yoga, right? Everybody who has practiced yoga in in a way I do it, I, I just feel into my movements and I experience an immediate benefit from it. Right? The way I sleep, the way I feel, the way I can move. And yet we find criticism about it. I agree with you. It's important to have more data, more facts, something more tangible. And I love that we are getting to the stage where we are talking about our brain, how it works, and the beautiful tools you have introduced to us as well in all sorts of communities, not just leaders, as you mentioned. And at the same time, I think if something feels good to you, 
and feels helpful to you and makes you feel better every day, why do we need to look for criticism in this case? We live in an attention economy and that's what gets people's attention, the negative. (sighs) But yeah, you know, even the insight that yoga essentially in those types of activities, they strengthen neurobiological connections related to emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. But the point about the criticism is that we know this is really helpful for people to be doing, but if there's an alternative narrative that it's not very good and it's a waste of time, people will avoid investing their time in getting good at becoming a habit mechanic, for example. Yeah. So you've got to make sure that it's, it's built on really good science. And I think that's the problem with, with psychology as a discipline is that because it's still predominantly explained through what I call black box models, which I really explain in the book, mm-hmm. then it is a real easy target. And it's easy to say, yeah, a lot of rubbish psychology, even though people are thinking every millisecond of every day and it drives everything that they do. I think that the more we can connect it to robust science and actually what's going on in in your brain, you know, it's really easy to forget you've got a brain inside your head. You can sort of see your muscles and your arms and things, but this thing that's running everything you're doing, you can't actually see it's encased inside your skull and it's driving everything you're doing. And most people have literally zero awareness of it. They know how to make the muscle bigger, mm. you know, and that's become a huge industry in itself. Yeah. But they're completely, I don't know if ignorance is the right word, but we don't really, you know, our brain is not really considered. Yeah, if we do learn more about it and learn how to manage it better, life gets easier. John, it's very important for people to know where they can find out more about you, your consultancy and the book. So please share a few links they can click on to buy the book and to get in touch with you. Yeah, so The Habit Mechanic is available on all major online you know, bookstores, including Amazon. Just search for The Habit Mechanic. And you can find more about our consultancy at tougherminds.co.uk. Loads of free resources on there. You can see how we help individuals, leaders, and organizations. And I'm sure, Kathleen, you'll share those links somewhere near the podcast. Yeah. So if you can't understand my North of England accent, then you'll find the link. But it's tougher, which is T-O-U-G-H-E-R minds.co.uk. Hey, John, if they understand my weird German, whatever the other part is of my accent... They surely can understand you. I have no doubts. I did. And I'm very grateful that you have been here and you shared so authentically all your insights or a lot of your insights with us. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen. And thank you to everyone who's listened. And as John highlighted, indeed, we are going to share all those links with you. And we'd love to hear your feedback as always, obviously. What has been particularly useful? What habits might you have put in place already? And how has John helped you already? But also, what is it you want to learn more about? Um, Feel free to get in touch with either of us. Um, Share your questions, share your thoughts, and we are happy to get back to you and to support you further. But for now, have a wonderful remaining day and speak to you very soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.